trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I'm feeling a little bit dangerous today. I am going to skate onto the thin ice. And I'm going to invite you to come and join me. I don't know. We'll see what the consequences are. You know, the battle for your mind is a real thing, and I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to encourage you to think clearly and independently about some of the things going on around us. You'll see what I mean here in just a moment. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, as well as LifesavingFood.com. So among the things I'm going to be touching on today, going to be questioning a couple of things about uh, the COVID vaccine. That's uh, that's enough to red flag, you know, a lot of of the, uh, the censors out there, the facts checkers and so forth. But I want to start with the real hot-button issue. This is the one that uh, you're not even supposed to think, much less say aloud. And that is, uh, what if there was fraud or otherwise uh, there were irregularities and uh, inconsistencies and potential manipulation in the election of last year? Now, that's not the same thing as saying Trump won. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not the same thing as saying the election was stolen. It's just simply asking the question and trying to follow the, the trails as to, is it possible that someone could have interfered? And, and, and this, it, the reason I bring this up is because there's, there's been some press about the Arizona election audit. What a curious event. In that it was apparently something that was taken very seriously. There was there was some uh, back and forth, you know, threats on, you know, all sides. Well, the Department of Justice doesn't want you to look at this. And we're not even supposed to question this. And as the report on the Arizona election audit came out, there was some very interesting damage control that took place. First of all, there was a, a preliminary synopsis or there was there was some kind of uh, advance information that was leaked to the press, which quickly released and says, well, you know what the Arizona audit found was Biden received even more votes than originally thought, and therefore he conclusively won. As if the, the purpose of that audit was to somehow unseat Biden and reinstate Trump. But that's not why it took place. It was not about, you know, reinstalling Trump, the rightful president. You know, it, it wasn't anything like that. It wasn't about unseating Biden. It was about checking the integrity of the process itself and seeing, was it, in fact, above board? Was it beyond reproach? And there's some very crucial information the press left out. So they did the first little initial, hey, well, you know, you can't, uh, uh, you can't say that, uh, that, that Biden is illegitimate. Why, look, he got more votes and uh, the matter is settled. <laughs> I think we've heard this before in, in a few other uh, tones there. But... There were very large inconsistencies that were found. And, and the, the most telling thing is how silent the media is about this right now. 
They came out with the first couple of little reports. Oh, this is to cast doubt on it. And then they have gone dark. They don't, they don't want to say anything. Which is where, this is where the alternative information sources, like yours truly, like uh, websites like AmericanThinker.com, come into play. Michael Kimmett has an article called What the Press is Leaving Out About the Arizona Election Audit. And I guess I, I should probably offer this disclaimer at the very beginning. My goal here is not to re-enthrone, you know, Donald Trump, nor is it to unseat Joe Biden. But I am very curious as to whether or not we can actually trust the election process or whether it's something that can just be manipulated at the will of those who are in power. Because it's looking that way, you know, in, in a pretty big way. So let's talk about this. Michael Kimmett says... The ethical corruption of our new national media has extended to a degree that once would have seemed unimaginable. We were exposed to yet another remarkable example with the reporting on the long-awaited audit of the 2020 presidential election results in Arizona. Widespread election fraud had been suspected in Maricopa County, the largest in the state, and the state legislature authorized a thorough forensic investigation. Now, a draft of the election report was leaked to the press last week, and every news outlet quickly released selectively chosen details. The message was straightforward. Well, this audit proves Joe Biden actually won the state's presidential election by even more than originally reported and thoroughly discredited any charges of election fraud. So here is, as Paul Harvey would say, the rest of the story. While the audit did find that a hand recount of all the original ballots did widen Joe Biden's margin by several hundred votes, the press deliberately and steadfastly ignored and left unreported the most critical results of the draft audit. Included among those original ballots, the most comprehensive election audit ever conducted established the following. More than 23,000 mail-in votes were cast under voter IDs from people who should not have received their ballots by mail because they had moved. More than 10,000 voters cast ballots in more than one county. More than 9,000 mail-in ballots were returned and counted than had been mailed out of registered voters. Thousands of official results did not match those who voted. Thousands more were cast in person in the name of those who had moved out of state. Logs and data files related to the election had been deliberately erased from the election management system or EMS server in violation of the law. Thousands of original ballots were duplicated more than once. Auditors were never provided with the required chain of custody documentation for the ballots, causing increased ambiguity regarding the accuracy of the election results. None of the various systems related to the election had numbers that would balance and agree with each other. And finally, Maricopa County officials actively interfered with the audit, withheld subpoena items, and refused to answer questions that are normally standard in such audits. But you know, other than that, it was all very clear and straightforward and the most honest and above-board election ever. Now, this is one county in one state. I would say that's some pretty reasonable doubt that's being cast there. Now, if, if people are concerned, well, Brian, that kind of talk is dangerous because it undermines the legitimacy of President Biden. And I don't know how to say this without sounding a little bit snarky, so here goes. 
Oh, you still give legitimacy to politicians? Any politicians? Maybe you haven't been paying attention to what these guys have been up to here lately, but I think real close about giving them any more credibility than you absolutely have to. Michael Kimmett says these and other innumerable irregularities were clearly identified and discussed in detail throughout the 114-page draft audit. But the mainstream, mainstream press focused on a single paragraph that reported a slight difference in the hand recount of original ballots that included a large number of, of, <clears throat> a large number of apparently fraudulently cast votes. He says details of the audit will be sent to the Arizona Attorney General for a possible criminal prosecution, and a number of recommendations are on the way to the state legislature seeking laws to eliminate widespread election fraud. Now, the purpose of the forensic audit was not to overturn the 2020 election. The purpose of the audit was to prevent future election corruption that was rampant in Maricopa County and elsewhere last year. Isn't it curious that the news media reported nothing on this? In 2000, the presidential election between George W. Bush and Al Gore was extended for weeks by seven Democrat appointees on on the rogue Florida Supreme Court. And the media, which had done all they could to manipulate the reporting on Election Day by falsely declaring the swing state's outcome, desperately stayed on in hopes of finding proof their candidate should have won. A consortium of a dozen major news outlets spent more than a million dollars and a year of effort, only to reluctantly conclude that Bush had won after all. But 20 years later, the same companies had not the slightest interest to investigate innumerable reports of election fraud nationwide while ridiculing all those who wanted to find out what really happened. He says the performance of the press was shameful 20 years ago. It is repugnant now. And I don't know where that leaves us at this point. Look, I've been a skeptic about uh, you know elections for quite some time. I, I think, you know, we're, we're trained to think this is the highest uh, expression of our, our civic duty to get out there and vote. And if you're an informed voter, you know, and especially on local issues, that may be the case. You can probably make a difference. I don't know how it works as far as the national elections, but I think I agree with, uh, was it Mark Twain or H.L. Mencken? One of those guys said something along the lines, if voting really made a difference, they would have outlawed it by now. And I think I probably agree with that one more. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. You know, there's a part of me that almost feels just a tiny bit guilty because my my goal always, every time I sit down to do this show, is to not bring more fear or more anger to a world that's already overflowing with both of those qualities. It's It's just everywhere. But when I talk about some of the supply chain breakdowns, when I talk about, you know, the rising prices of food, and by the way, I've got a doozy of an article I'm going to be sharing with you in just a little bit about uh, what uh, what is, is likely to happen to economic markets. 
these are bad news. I get it. I don't, but I'm not trying to take advantage of this. I am very grateful, though, to have a sponsor like Life Saving Food that can make a difference for those who are willing to act rather than just sit back and wring their hands. So if you have concerns, if you feel like, boy, the instability of uh, you know everything right now would justify me being a little more prepared, whether that's uh, building onto my existing food storage program or starting a food storage program, if that's something that I finally think makes sense, I want you to check out lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the sponsor links there, or there's, yeah, you can, you can click on a link in my show notes at the com. Here's the important part. If you find a, a survival kit, a 72-hour kit, a starter kit, or even a long-term storage, you know, a program, you can save 20% on it. This is significant. We're talking 25-year shelf life. We're talking easily stackable square buckets that maximize for space. But by putting the coupon code HIDE in at checkout, H-Y-D-E, you get a 20% discount. Please check out my show notes for details. It's thebrianhydeshow.com. All right, let's talk about free speech and independent thought. I uh, became acquainted with John Rappaport many years ago and really appreciated his take on on how the media operates. I think he was, he was one of the first people who, who really dug deep into how media manipulates what we think. And this was at a time where I actually was watching the, you know, nightly news pretty much every night. And I, and I think about uh, how he would describe, like, for instance, if there, was, if there was a school shooting or something, we always knew what was the most important story of the day because the news anchor was actually on location. We are here in, you know, I forget what it was, Sandy Hook, you know, Sandy Hook Elementary, wherever that was, um, in, in Connecticut, we're here today because this is the most important thing. And they're like the high priests or high priestesses of, of some religion. I'm here to tell you what to think and what to feel about this. And I don't think it's any exaggeration to, to say there's, there's a ton of psychological manipulation that goes on, particularly through our media. So when it comes to someone who can really deconstruct that and make it understandable, I think John Rappaport is one of the best. And he's got a great article about dangerous speech versus free speech and how uh, we have to deal with mobs of ignoramuses. Oh, you might get upset at the name-calling there, but I, I don't think he's inaccurate here. He starts with a quote from George Washington from 1783. George Washington said, For if men are to be precluded from offering their sentiments on a matter which may involve the most serious and alarming consequences, that can invite the consideration of mankind... Reason is of no use to us. The freedom of speech may be taken away, and dumb and silent we may be led, like sheep, to the slaughter. Now, John Rappaport says, Many people believe that spreading COVID falsehoods can be so dangerous that censorship is absolutely necessary. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Ron Paul Institute YouTube channel was mysteriously taken down, like, like suspended, with no warning, no strikes, and then it was mysteriously re, uh, reactivated a short time later. And YouTube has said very clearly, we're going to, we're going to aggressively de-platform and, and 
cancel the accounts of people who spread what they call vaccine misinformation. Now, the crazy thing about that is, you know, the, the standard of, of, of what constitutes misinformation, that's a pretty fluid thing. Basically, anything that constitutes the official, that, uh, that contradicts, rather, the official narrative, well, that must be misinformation, and therefore we've got to, uh, we've got to ban it and, and squelch it. But what if someone's asking relevant information? What if they're asking relevant questions, trying to, to get a better understanding? How is censorship supposed to help us in that case? See, I'm not so sure about that. So back to John Rappaport, who reminds us that people believe, lots of people seem to believe that spreading COVID falsehoods can be so dangerous that it justifies censorship. But he says that view happens to be the central refuge of liars. And it turns out that big time liars always want to censor their opponents because it's the only leg they have to stand on. In an atmosphere for free discourse, they would fall. And of course, who decides what is false and what is true? Who hangs out that shingle and makes judgments that affect the lives of millions of people? Rappaport says there's an astounding level of ignorance here. Many people believe the truth should carry the day. Once it's established, there's no need to permit freedom of speech. But he says these people have a very low ceiling of understanding. They've never explored what freedom of speech is all about. They're citizens in name only. If someone says the vaccine is harmful, people will be dissuaded from taking it. That would be dangerous. Well, putting aside the fact that the vaccine is a destroyer, free speech implies living with danger. The remedy is intelligence and knowledge, and the only workable remedy is raising people's ability to consider all sorts of judgments, opinions, and conclusions without being irrationally swayed to one side or another. Otherwise, we have fascists on parade, mobs of clueless ignoramuses. He says, once upon a time, there was a never-never land called Dolt with millions of traffic lights. A rider penned, always cross the street when you're facing a red light. Stay on the curb when the light is green. Outrage followed. The rider was censored for dangerous speech. The rulers and their followers were so impressed with this victory that they established a national task force to root out falsehoods of all kinds and censor them. Pursuing this path, the society turned into a police state, and the majority of people approved. Now, his point in telling that story is, we're heading in that direction now. He has a quote here from John Stuart Mill from 1859. Strange it is that men should admit the validity of, their arg- of the arguments for free speech, but object to their being pushed to an extreme, not seeing that unless the reasons are good for an extreme case, they are not good for any case. John Rappaport says it's no surprise that modern civilization, intellectually based on a fool's version of science, has built science as a new religion, with all the restrictions that organized religions have enforced. After all, when the teachings of a man called Jesus were incorporated into a powerful church, that church set about censoring, imprisoning, torturing, and burning dissidents, as if Jesus would have approved. Centuries later, People were shocked to learn that this church was rife with pedophile priests. He says, I'd be shocked to learn the church isn't filled with pedophiles. Many are the other <clears throat> secret, many of the other secret crimes that uh, men in power today are committing, given that they're already pushing relentlessly a highly destructive vaccine into the arms of a billion people. They have to demand censorship of dissidents. 
So he says, no, I'm not surprised that the press and social media and politicians are trying to censor COVID information, which doesn't serve their purposes. We'll come back to John Rappaport's article here in a few minutes. And I'm not suggesting that, boy, therefore you should be just as anti-COVID vaccine or any other vaccine as possible. But what I am suggesting is maybe it's okay if people hold a different point of view or they have reservations for whatever reasons. I mean, you're still free to pursue your course of action. You can choose to get the vaccine or not. But how would adding more information into that mix, more points of view, more opinions, be a problem? I mean, you are capable of independent thought, right? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They are an equal housing opportunity lender. And the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is ready to help any of my listeners within the state of Utah who are looking to secure a home loan. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, these are the folks you want to count on to get you your loan quickly. Because uh, the real estate market being what it is, you've got to move pretty quickly if you're going to get the home of your dreams. You find it on the market, it ain't going to be there for very long. Contact the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage by calling 435 703 4522. And yes, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. So I'm sharing this article from John Rappaport. This is <clears throat> from his blog, nomorefakenews.com. And we're talking about the censorship of dissidents, particularly as it applies to COVID information. John Rappaport says, consider this, a week ago at a standard FDA conference to discuss recommending COVID boosters, several scientists testified that convincing data to support the additional shots were entirely lacking. In fact, two leading in-house FDA scientists had just resigned because they opposed the push for the boosters. And finally, the FDA committee as a whole rejected the present need for boosters. But the following day, the head of the NIH and the White House itself ignored the FDA and said the boosters were coming. Even the FDA was effectively censored. Rappaport says there are thousands of scientists all over the world who strenuously oppose the official COVID narrative. And they can't even get a glance from editors of medical journals when they submit papers. Talking heads uh, on the news are feeding the population fast food COVID science. A a manufactured product consisting of synthetic BS about cases, deaths, and the virus, the vaccine. But Rappaport says it's cardboard and no dissenters are allowed. He says, since I stopped writing for mainstream and so-called alternative outlets in the early 1990s, I've gone my own way. As of this writing, I'm still here. My videos have been taken down. My site was hacked. We restored it. I'm still here. And he says, I take freedom of speech seriously, no matter what. John Rappaport says, only low scum want to censor us. They make an absurd pretense of claiming we're liars, but we don't want to censor them. That's called a clue. 
Right now, as I write this, he says, Australian men with balls, union construction workers, are staging an insurrection against their union bosses who are colluding with corrupt politicians to enforce COVID restrictions and vaccine mandates. The workers are facing off against cops in the street. This is one of the biggest stories in the world. And the New York Times and the Washington Post and the news networks should be leading with it and covering breaking developments wall to wall. But instead, they're downplaying it and hiding it. They're news whores. And these, the, they are the news, these news whores, he says, and their pimps are holding the line for fascism. So he says, I'll close for now with this story. Months ago, an alternative journalist approached me, urging me to stop saying the pandemic virus doesn't exist. Now, John Rappaport says, I sized up the complaint. It seemed to have several roots. One was I was confusing people who couldn't decide what to believe. Two, there were far more important COVID issues that needed to be explored. And three, that journalist was receiving emails citing my work and asking for clarification. And this was bothersome, especially when the emailers agreed with me. So he says, the journalist offhandedly and blithely assumed I would obey and stop writing about the existence of the virus. But of course, he says, I reacted oppositely. I always do. I dig deeper and farther along the track I'm pursuing. In this case, I found and wrote more evidence for the non-existence of the virus. Now, that issue happens to be central and basic to the whole COVID story. And if writing about it confuses some people, that's what happens when free speech is still possible. There's nothing wrong with confusion. It's productive. It's supposed to be a prelude to more profound understanding. So John Rappaport says, I'm not running some sort of operation that seeks uniformity. That journalist was trying to censor me by having me censor myself. No dice. He quotes Wendell Phillips, who said, He who stifles discussion secretly doubts whether what he professes to believe is really true. And John Rappaport responds, those fools who can only opt for the truth will never grasp the meaning of the First Amendment, and they'll never see the freight train of fascism coming. Now, I understand it could throw some people for a way. Did he say, did he say that there is, uh, <laughs> there is no virus? You know, yeah, he did. Well, doesn't that disqualify him from having an opinion? I don't know. He, it's, look, is, is it possible he could be wrong about that, but right about other things? I mean, that's, that's the kind of question a thinking person would ask. And if you, if you just understand, you can learn truth from any source, but the ultimate uh, decision as to is it truth or is it not, that comes down to you and me being willing to do our homework and to, to, to suss it out and decide, does this make sense or not? And, and it's totally okay at any point of that inquiry process to say, I don't know. So I might disagree with John Rappaport on the idea that uh, there is no virus. I think there probably is, based on, on what I have seen. But it's not the virus that concerns me. Because whatever it is, you know, the survival rate is still well above 99% for most people. Unless you have some comorbidities or you're, you know, over 80 years of age. But I'll make my own mind up, and I would encourage you, make your mind up too. This is too important to, to leave in the hands of somebody else who can figure it out and, you know, tell us what to think. So don't be afraid. You might encounter error. In fact, guaranteed, you're going to encounter error. Now, I may even be the source of some of that error. I try not to, but you know what? I'm human, and it's possible. 
It's possible. I could I could get hoodwinked. But don't try to silence other people. Don't try to, to limit, you know, the, the points of view that can be brought to the table. I think I'd have to agree with, uh, with Milton, you know, who says, you know, whoever knew truth to be, you know, for the worse when it grapples with falsehood. It will eventually prevail. But the most important thing is you have to remember that battle for your mind is real. You are the best truth detector for your worldview. You're the one who has to make the decision. What do I believe? What do I actually believe enough that I will live my life according to those beliefs? Don't ever outsource that. All right, are you ready for some uh, you ready for some straight up hard truth? I think a lot of us have been pretending that economically, well, things are things are tough or you know, we may have a few challenges, but otherwise, you know, everything's okay. Could our situation be reaching a critical mass? Now, I understand this is a scary thought, but I want to pose a question. If there was a market crash that nobody thinks is possible that was coming, would you rather brace for impact or would you rather be blindsided? I know how I would answer that question. I don't know. You know I'm not going to answer for you, but I want to share with you a thought or two from Charles Hugh Smith on the market crash that nobody thinks possible is coming. He says, a banquet of consequences is being served and the risk-off crashes are like revenge, best served cold. Charles Hugh Smith says, the ideal setup for a crash is a consensus that a crash is impossible. In other words, just like the present. Sure, there are carefully measured murmurings about a correction, but nobody with anything to lose in the way of public credibility is calling for an honest-to-goodness crash, a real crash, not a wimpy, limp-wristed dip that will immediately be bought. He says, what I'm calling for is a rip-your-face-off, weeping bitter tears over the grave of the speculative wealth that you thought was going to be forever crash. All those buying the dip, because the Fed will never let the market go down, will be crushed like scurrying cockroaches. And all those trying to rotate into the next hot sector or asset class will also be crushed like scurrying scurrying cockroaches because when the everything bubble pops, well... Everything pops. And he says, there is no shelter in a risk-off cascade. See, I don't even understand half the, the language he's using. Those who do, you know, feel free to respond. Maybe, maybe this makes sense. Charles Hugh Smith says, the crash is coming as a result of multiple mutually reinforcing dynamics. The first being that no serious person believes a crash is possible, much less imminent. And from here, he goes in no particular order into a raft of other causally consequential triggers of a cascading market crash. Now, unfortunately, we're up against the brakes. We'll have to pick those up in the next segment. I don't share this with you because, oh boy, this is going to make you so scared. I don't play the market, so, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm feeling like maybe, maybe I'm, I'm at, at some degree of safety here. But I think this is the kind of thing we really need to know ahead of time. Position ourselves for as best we can. And maybe just hang on. Because it looks like the ride is going to get bumpy. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Uh, if you stuck it out for this segment, uh, my friend, you have nerves of steel. That's okay. The willingness to embrace unpleasant facts doesn't mean that you're a masochist. That doesn't mean you're wishing for anything bad to happen. But economically, you know, things have been teetering for a long time. I think, uh, who was it? Fred Reed used to talk about how the U.S. economy is wheezing along on life support. And I have, I've marveled at how long things have, have held on, how, how far we have gone, how, how Congress has been able to kick the can down the road over and over again. But I seriously think the time is coming where this is just not going to be an option. And Charles Hugh Smith says there is a market crash coming that nobody thinks is possible. And here are some of the reasons why. He says, as I noted in my call for the top, is anyone willing to call the top of the everything bubble? This was published back on September 6th. There is no history to support the widespread confidence that the extremes of overvaluation, leverage, euphoria, and speculation last forever, or even much longer than the lifespan of a cockroach. He says we're well past that benchmark into unprecedented insanity. So what happens next? Squish. Just for the record, he says the Dow topped out on August 13th, the S&P topped out on September 2nd, and the NASDAQ topped out a day after his call, September 7th. Close enough for government work. Secondly, he points to the credibility of the Federal Reserve being in the dumpster, which just caught fire. And he has a link to another article. The Fed is fatally corrupt, and so is the rest of America's status quo. He says the Fed is corrupt on multiple levels, thoroughly, completely corrupt. And so are all of its minions, proxies, apparatchiks, toadies, apologists, and lackeys. This is finally leaking through the Fed corruption containment vessel. Even as the lackeys in the billionaire-owned corporate media are now fearful of losing whatever tattered shreds of credibility they still possess by refusing to acknowledge Fed corruption, overreach, and hubris. And so at long last, the Fed no longer walks on water. The Fed's fraudulent travesty of, of uh, mockery of a scam sham has finally breached the three-foot-thick four, three containment walls, and the putrid stench of Fed corruption can no longer be bottled up. And then he points out, like any good kleptocratic Politburo, the Fed cashiered the two most indefensible scapegoats to divert attention from the equally corrupt incumbents presiding over the collapse of Fed credibility. That would be uh, raising taxes on the wealthy. He says, don't be surprised if the scapegoats are airbrushed out of official photos per officially approved propaganda. Number three, he says, as I detailed in the U.S. economy in a nutshell, what, when critical parts are in indefinite back order, the machine grinds to a halt. And another article titled, Sorry, Fed, Inflation is Already Embedded. He says the fuel of the inflation rocket has just ignited and the clueless, corrupt Fed is watching the boost phase in abject, humiliating confusion. As the Fed is now completely powerless, having blown the opportunity to get ahead of the curve by reducing their making billionaires richer stimulus a year ago. But he says inflation is not just embedded, it's global. Natural gas prices could triple in entire regions without even breathing hard. The cost of other essentials could just as easily triple without breaking a sweat. Inflation crushes risk on speculative markets like, well, scurrying cockroaches. Squish. 
Number four, he says the Fed has lost control of yields. We all know that liars reveal their dishonesty via micro signals. And he says, with this in mind, he encourages you slow down the video of Fed Politburo speakers, starting with Chairperson Powell. Wealth inequality soaring, it's not our doing, etc. Oops, he says the cat is out of the bag. The Fed has lost control of yields. Trust in the Fed's godlike powers is wavering. As punters and players realize the Fed's shuck and jive has finally lost its power to wow the greedy and the credulous. He says rising yields crush risk on speculative markets like scurrying cockroaches. Number five, China is not saving the world this time. And he links to another article he's written called What's Really Going On in China. This was published on September 23rd. Charles Hugh Smith says China has other fish to fry and it isn't bailing out global markets like it did in previous bubble pops. Squish. Number six, the rising dollar is kryptonite to speculative markets, emerging market debt and risk on euphoria. Sorry about that, but he says you know what happens next. Squish. Number seven, the retail bag holders are now all in. This is, this is the one that uh, I actually partially understood, and, and it was alarming to consider this. As he noted in his article published on September 8th, please don't pop our precious bubble. The retail punters have finally gone all in on the this bubble will never pop everything bubble. As he observed back in August, Charles Hughes Smith in his article, the smart money has already sold. Retail bag holders have poured more cash into the everything bubble than they did in the past decade or two. And he says that is the most reliable signal that a bubble is about to pop. Sorry about that. Number eight. The buy the dip crowd has been so well trained that they will provide the necessary buying to keep the cascade from gathering too much momentum. A stair step down that sucks in the buy the dip buyers is ideal for those profiting from the decline. First up, a rally to close the quarter positively to make it appear that every money manager beat the index funds and so on. But the net result is still still, they're going to get squished like cockroaches. Consequences can be put off for some time, he says, but the rot beneath the machinations only amplifies the eventual collapse. The banquet of consequences is being served and the risk-off crashes are, like revenge, best served cold. Now I get it. That's a, that is a truckload of bad information or ugly information. And I don't want you to sit back and take it with like, oh, paralyzing fear. There's nothing we can do. We're just going to have to learn to adapt and perhaps uh, adjust you know, and, and improvise because the way things have gone, the way things that we've grown accustomed to things being, that's not going to be around for a whole lot longer. And I, I realize that that very prospect of change is scary for a lot of people. But if there was ever a time to become crystal clear on the things that you have control over versus the things that you don't, this is it. I feel for the people who, you know, have all of their money tied up in, you know, their, their retirement accounts and whatnot. Um, you know, basically the, the majority of their, their money exists in electronic form. It's not in a tangible form. And when a crash comes like Charles Hugh Smith is talking about, 
I think we're going to see a lot of people get to get wiped out. Whether it's the the dollar just simply becoming, you know, no longer a tenable currency. I mean, we're already seeing some rumblings that perhaps it won't be the world's reserve currency. What are these people going to do? You know, again, I don't have the answer. I'm I'm not trying to create fear by, by pointing this out, but just the reality is this borrow, borrow, borrow mentality could not go on forever. Easy money has made a lot of people get deeply into debt. It has changed our perspective on what is money versus what isn't. In my opinion, the people who are going to do best through the times ahead, especially as the market crashes, are going to be the people who have invested in things like commodities, whether that be land, whether that be seeds, tools, food, barterable goods, skills, those are people who have something tangible. You know, notice I'm not saying, yes, you put it all into gold and silver. I think that it's actually wise for a person to have, you know, a degree of precious metals, just, you know, a portion of, of their savings in that. But I really feel for the people who've got all their money strictly in electronic form. And I think that uh, we're, we're going to see a huge adjustment where, you know, what, what we see today is the middle class is suddenly going to become the lower class. And it's going to happen probably much quicker than than most of us would like. Rather than focus on, oh, look at what we've lost, look at this, you know, how terrible things are. What if we were to instead focus on how can we help each other? How can we support one another, look out for one another, even if all of us are basically, uh, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire? You know, if you have doubts that this can be done, I have a great book I'd like to recommend. It's from Dr. Viktor Frankl, and it's called it's called Man's Search for Meaning. Dr. Frankl, at one time, was uh, he was a prisoner in a concentration camp during World War II, but he came out of that experience a better man, and had some remarkable insights to offer as well. So when things are bad, that doesn't mean all is lost. Just means you got to dig a little deeper to find the good in you. This is the Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hi there, and welcome to the show. This is where wrong thinkers gather to find courage and camaraderie and to reclaim their status as free individuals. So you're in the right place. Whether you're a longtime wrong thinker or wrong think curious, I'm glad you're here. The battle for your mind is real, and I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to help you uh, think more clearly and independently. What you do with the information I share is entirely up to you, but I've got some great stuff to share with you in this hour. Our program is brought to you by MonticelloCollege.org. If you're interested in learning about an education for our time, click on the link in my sponsor links in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Also by LifesavingFood.com and the Heather Turner team 
at Patriot Home Mortgage. thought I would start with kind of a fun essay from Paul Rosenberg here. People who don't know their history have much more in common with small children than they might realize. And, and I'm trying to remember, I think it was Cicero who talked about uh, those who don't know their history are forever a child. And if you think about it, it makes sense because they become dependent on someone else to tell them what to think. Well, Paul Rosenberg, many years ago, discovered the hidden side of history. And I love how he shares about what he learned about how history books are written. He says, in 1981, I was looking through some old books that somehow ended up at my parents' house. And among them, I found a set of history books from the 1930s. So with an innate history, with an innate interest in the topic of history, I began reading them, and I was almost, he says, I was absolutely shocked by what I found. He says, the last book of the series covered what were then modern times. And he says, to my horror, I found lavish praise for, of all people, Benito Mussolini. Now, these were American books, by the way, beautifully produced by a respected publisher, and there, in authoritative tones, was the story of the great Mussolini, the savior of Italy. Now, he says, given that I was taught precisely the opposite a mere 30-odd years later, you can imagine my surprise. But just to establish my point, he says, here are a few quotes from that time that the books were written about Mussolini. Winston Churchill has said, What a man! I have lost my heart! Thomas Edison said, the greatest genius of the modern age. Franklin Roosevelt said, I am much interested and deeply impressed by what he has accomplished and by his evidenced honest purpose of restoring Italy. That surprise you? <laughs> I mean, look, it's, it's well known. You don't see it very often, but uh, Winston Churchill at one point actually talked about how um, he, he, was, he was putting some praise on Hitler, saying, if uh, if England should ever find herself uh, in in a situation such as Germany did, and he's talking, you know, post World War One, he says, "I would hope that we would have a Hitler of our own to lead us back to our rightful place among the nations." No, he actually said it. Now, what's interesting, Paul Rosenberg points out, is these quotes are no longer mentioned in respectable circles, and that's his point. What is inconvenient to the current ruling establishment is dropped from the history books. He says, when I was young, the USSR was famous for horribly twisting history to make themselves look like the great and mighty ones. He says they even made jokes about it on the original Star Trek, but here was clear evidence that history in America had been altered. And in this case, parts had not been added, but they most certainly had been taken away. And Paul Rosenberg says, that rather shook my view of history as it had been taught to me at school. So he says, a few years later, I came across an even more troubling instance of history being pulled out of the books. Now he says, I'd been writing a few books for a major publisher, and one of my editors asked me to meet him for dinner, which I did. He says, we discussed projects that we might pursue and generally had a pleasant evening. At some point, we left off discussing our projects and talked about history. Somehow we ended up at the Armenian Genocide. And he says, I, he was surprised that I knew about it. Many still don't. But I'd known quite a few Ar- Armenian kids growing up, and I'd heard their stories. Then, he says, my editor took a deep breath and said, then I want to tell you something. He explained that a few years before, he had been working for one of the three big textbook publishers, 
and happened to be editing a high school history book. One day he got a call from the U.S. State Department. He was shocked and asked why would they be calling him. It's about the history book you're editing, the man said. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, My friend had been raised in the same way that I had, so the idea of censoring the textbook was astonishing to him. But the man from the State Department said, We need you to cut back the section on the Armenian Genocide. Now, he says, my friend was horrified and complained, but it was the true history. Yes, said the man, but we need to keep the Turks happy. And so Paul Rosenberg says, my friend's two to three pages on the Armenian genocide was reduced to two to three paragraphs, and it was a victory that he got that much space. And Rosenberg says, all the, according to all I learned in school, Such things did not happen in America. According to all that is self-promoted about academia, they are sworn enemies of such things, but they do happen a lot. He says, I've encountered the same thing on museum walls, descriptions that are clearly misleading, but which glorify the leadership of our time. Now, he says, there's much more to this, but I'll let the point stand as I've made it thus far. History is manipulated. You can find the truth if you dig through old books and artifact records or from some specialists, but not from school books. The books aren't filled with lies. They just remove facts that don't make their bosses look good. And this is not a trivial thing because it affects a lot more than school children. As Adolf Hitler was starting his aggression against the Poles, the London Times quoted him as saying, Go, kill without mercy. After all, who remembers the Armenians? So what is deleted from history can teach us nothing. And those who have this power use it to glorify themselves. That's a very dangerous thing, and it rules the school books of America and the Western world in general. Maybe you remember Paul Simon's song, Kodachrome? When I think back on all the crap I learned at high, in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. So the bottom line says Paul Rosenberg, is what you learned in school was a partial cartoon version of history. You learned what made the big bosses look good and no more. I think back to my friend and mentor, Stephen Pratt, who was really the one who, who introduced me to the idea that, yes, there are court historians, you know, those who work for the king, that, uh, that get to determine what is in the textbooks. And he would show you. Okay, here's a textbook written in the 1920s. Here is that same textbook, you know, 30 years later, talking about the same concepts, but because of who was in power then versus who was in power now, it was portrayed in a totally different way. And if that sounds too conspiratorial, which it may for some people, you know, I don't don't know what to tell you. Oh, it's a big conspiracy. They're changing the history books. But when you read a history book, Can we at least acknowledge what you're reading is someone else's interpretation of here's what happened or here's what to think about these events. And it's a far different thing from actually going to original sources. And again, I I have to tip my hat to, to the late, great Stephen Pratt for opening my mind to the idea that original research and original sources are how a person can get a very good picture of what actually took place. And I don't think most people do it for the, you know, the bragging rights to beat their chest. Ah, look how smart I am. Look how much smarter I am than anybody else. 
If anything, it's humbling when you start to realize how much information has been kept from us. But that heuristic approach where you have to do your own homework, you have to do your own research, you have to weigh it and determine, is this true or is this not? It requires work, which means a lot of people won't do it. I mean, come on, we're spoiled. Tell me what this means. Just quick, quick, you know, come on, I got 10 seconds. What does this all mean? Make it, make it count. If you're going to be a serious student of history, you've got to be willing to sweat. But once you understand that the history books are generally written to make whoever is in power at the time that book is published look good, it becomes a lot easier to understand some of the various spin. And at the same time, you've inoculated yourself, hopefully, against you know that, that particular bit of inform- misinformation. I mean, anybody who wants to be informed in this day and age has access to more information than ever before in human history. But they also have to work harder than ever before because there's so much spin, manipulation, propaganda, and censoring of facts. You've really got to want it in order to find it. And the only thing I can tell you is it's worth it. Even if you're just putting in a little bit of work every single day on a consistent basis. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Any of my listeners who uh, either are looking for a home loan in the state of Utah or you know somebody who's moving to the state and is going to be needing a home loan, please direct them to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com that can get you in touch. You can call 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, their offices are at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. All right, where to go next? This is part of our never-ending quest for clarity. I thought, uh, I'm hearing more talk about taxing the rich, and I understand that is the path of least resistance for most opportunistic politicians. Well, the rich can afford this, and we're going to tax them, and, you know, they just keep redefining who's rich. You know, somebody earning $60,000 a year, hey, congratulations, you're rich. No, give us your money. <laughs> not, not quite the compliment we thought it would be. But taxing the rich is not something that just, you know, soaks those people who have more than you. It's, it's not just playing to our sense of envy. It actually has some consequences that often aren't considered, like it discourages productivity. Kent McManigal, writing for everythingvoluntary.com, lays this out as clearly as possible and, and yet so succinctly, he says, tax the rich? Oh, it sounds like a great idea to people without a grasp of economic reality. But for the rest of us, it looks like national economic suicide. Because if you punish people for being productive, you'll discourage productivity. Yes, there are some people who will keep working hard to create value, even if the IRS keeps stealing it. But he says, many would throw in the towel and live on the bare minimum they are allowed to keep. 
They wouldn't start businesses to benefit society or employ people. They wouldn't buy luxuries that people create, build, and sell to rich people. So there's no faster way to cripple the economy other than a pandemic shutdown. Kent McManigle says you could confiscate the wealth of every rich person in the country, even redefining rich so you can take more. It still wouldn't put a dent in the debt that Congress has racked up, a debt it pretends is yours to pay. National debt is a lie. McManigle says if Elon Musk had most of his wealth confiscated to fund government, the future of space travel would be in peril. In fact, it would probably be crippled for the next generation or two, at least in America. It's too great a risk. Even the rich people I don't like have a right to keep the money they or their parents earned. He says the only people who don't have a right to keep their money are those who get money from politics or other criminal behavior. That money should be returned to the victims, not handed to the government. Tax the rich is a trendy thing to say. It demonstrates how woke you are. But as with most wokeness, it also declares your ignorance in a loud voice. And so Kent McManigle says, I don't want rich people taxed for the same reason I don't want poor people taxed. It's unethical to take money that doesn't belong to you, no matter your justification. Taxation is theft, even if you would rather pretend it isn't. And if your plan relies on theft, it needs to be scrapped. Plus, he says, I don't want government to have money. I'd rather shut off the supply and starve the beast. Taxation is apparently not even necessary for government finances, since government has shown it will print whatever money it wants. Yes, this will eventually destroy the economy, but so will taxing the rich. But he says, if they're going to destroy destroy the economy anyway, I'd rather they do so without without, um, taxation. I'll have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well worth your while. Let's shift gears and talk about uh, getting the bigger picture. You know, as, as the global balance of power continues to shift, I think it's wise for us to keep an eye on what's happening geopolitically, even if we don't have any direct influence on it. And I love how Pat Buchanan zooms out to give us the details on the bigger picture. Interestingly enough, he talks about the eclipse of Europe as power is beginning to gather in Asia. Here's his take. He says, for centuries, up to and including the 20th, Europe seemed the great, the central pivot of world history. Then came the Great Civil War of the West, our Thirty Years' War, 1914 to 1945, where all of the great European powers, Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Russia, along with almost all of the rest, fought some of history's greatest battles. Now, the result was Europe's greatest nations were all bloodied. All of Europe's empires fell, and the colonial peoples were all largely liberated and began the great migration to the mother countries. And Europe was split between a U.S.-led West and a Moscow-dominated Soviet bloc. Yet even during that four-decade Cold War, Europe was viewed as the prize in the struggle. By the time that Cold War ended in triumph for the free world, a European Union modeled on the American Union was rising and almost all of Europe's newly freed nations began to join the NATO alliance. Yet one senses today that Europe's role in world history is passing, that the American pivot to China and the Indo-Pacific is both historic and permanent, and that as the past belongs to Europe, the future belongs to Asia. Asia, after all, is home to the world's most populous nations, China and India, to six of the world's nine nuclear powers, and to almost all of its major Muslim nations. 
<clears throat> Indonesia, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Turkey, and Iran. As well as to the world's largest economies outside of the U.S., namely China and Japan. And Europe? In 2016, Great Britain voted to withdraw from the EU. This summer, the British joined the Australians and the U.S. in an in an Oxus pact that uh, trashed a cherished French deal to build a dozen diesel-powered submarines and to replace them with British and U.S.-built nuclear-powered subs. Paris saw this as a betrayal, a stab in the back by allies whom General, General Charles de Gaulle had disparaged as les Anglo-Saxons. Yet Oxus was also an undeniably clear statement as to where the Australians saw their future, and it was not alongside France, but the USA. Still, this was the worst U.S. affront of our French allies since President Dwight Eisenhower <clears throat> ordered the French, the French and the British out of Suez. But at least then, Ike could say in 1956 that he had not been alerted to the British-French invasion of Egypt and that our NATO partners had acted without his knowledge or consent. To protest the treatment of France in the submarine deal, President Emmanuel Macron recalled his ambassador to the U.S., something that had never been done since France recognized the American colonies and came to their colonies and came to their aid during our war for independence. Indeed, the submarine agreement forced cancellation of a grand party at the French embassy in Washington, D.C. to celebrate the 240th anniversary of the Battle of the Capes. This was the critical British-French naval battle at the mouth of the Chesapeake in 1781 where a French fleet prevailed, enabling it to provide General George Washington's army cover as it surrounded, shelled, and compelled the surrender of General Lord Cornwallis's army at Yorktown. But Buchanan says if the British are out of the EU and the French are estranged from their NATO allies, Germany held an election where for the first time in history, the Christian Democratic Union of Konrad Adenauer, Helmut Kohl, and Angela Merkel was reduced to a fourth of the national vote. He says a new leader of Ger- the new leader of Germany, after months of negotiations, may be the leader of the Social Democrats, in concert with the Greens. But even that government may not be cobbled together by Christmas. Neither of the prospective chancellors for the Christian Democratic Union or the Social Democratic Party has the stature of Merkel who's been both leader of Germany for the past decade and a half, but also the de facto leader of Europe. Okay, I got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our, our commercial break. We'll come back to, uh, to Pat Buchanan's assessment of what is happening in terms of the shift of power, power shifting away from Europe. It's shifting toward Asia. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, anti-China sentiment, not, you know, necessarily related just to the, uh, the Wuhan virus, but... It's clear, you know, China is uh, is a rising power. And I don't know if the two toughest kids on the block are going to tangle or not, but this is probably worth keeping an eye on. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Sharing with you an article from Pat Buchanan. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. The Eclipse of Europe. 
And as much as I want to be appraised of current events, uh, I'm grateful for people like Pat Buchanan, who have, uh, I think, a good historical perspective. He's also a lot less partisan in his uh, in his writings than than some of the commentators out there. So I like what he has to say. You don't have to agree with everything, but I think uh, as far as a factual, informed, you know, reciting of of the the facts at hand, he's pretty tough to beat. And talking about how power is shifting away from Europe and to Asia, well, it's it's interesting to see this happen. And I don't know what it portends. It's not necessarily doom and gloom, but there's a definite shift that's underway. Pat Buchanan says, Consider the present condition of NATO, once celebrated as the most successful alliance in history, for having deterred any Soviet invasion of NATO Europe for the entire Cold War. In 2001, invoking Article 5 about an attack on one being an attack on all, NATO joined the Americans in their plunge into Afghanistan to deal with the perpetrators of 9-11. This August, 20 years later, all of our NATO allies pulled out as the Afghan army crumbled and vanished, and the Afghan regime collapsed. Our NATO allies thus shared in the ignominy of the American retreat and defeat. So Buchanan says not only is the center of political gravity shifting from Europe to Asia, but European unity seems a thing of the past. As Britain has left the EU, Scotland is considering secession from England. Catalonia is still thinking of secession from Spain. Sardinia is considering secession from Italy. Poland and Hungary are at odds with the EU over domestic political reforms said to be in conflict with the demands of bureaucrats in Brussels. And as for the southern tier EU and NATO nations, Spain, Italy and Greece, their main concern is less an invasion by Russia than the ongoing invasion from across the Mediterranean from Africa and the Middle East. So there's a nice geopolitical summary of what's taking place, courtesy of Pat Buchanan. Yes, there's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I wanted to take just a moment to, uh, to point to jury nullification. Just saw this wonderful article by Kirsten Tynan, who is with the Fully Informed Jury Association. And she gives a wonderful explanation of jury nullification. Given that this is kind of their full-time, you know, job, I'm inclined to take what she has to say to the bank. What do we mean by jury nullification? She says, in its strictest sense, jury nullification occurs when a jury returns a verdict of not guilty, even though jurors believe, beyond reasonable doubt, that the defendant has broken the law. Because the not guilty verdict cannot be overturned and because jurors cannot be punished for their verdict, that law is said to be nullified in that particular case. Now, to be clear, she says not every verdict of not guilty results from jury nullification. If jurors simply believe the accused has not been proven beyond reasonable doubt to have committed the offense and so vote not guilty, that's not jury nullification. If jurors believe beyond reasonable doubt that the accused committed the offense, but that the accused had the accused rather had a reason allowed for in law as a legal justification for doing it, for example, they were acting in self-defense and so voted not guilty, that also is not jury nullification. Kirsten Tynan says jury nullification rather occurs when jurors find the accused was proven beyond reasonable doubt to have committed the offense that there was no legal justification for doing so, 
and they still find the person not guilty. So a real-life example of this would be uh, the jury nullification acquittal of Antonio Willis. He was caught on tape engaging in a cannabis transaction with an undercover cop and acknowledged this to the jury when he took the stand and testified. In just 18 minutes, however, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict. In what can be said to be a milder form of jury nullification, some of the jurors, even just one, can hang the jury by maintaining a not guilty verdict even though they believe the defendant broke the law. There is no requirement that jurors must come to a unanimous verdict. If the jury cannot unanimously agree on a verdict of either not guilty or guilty, this is known as a hung jury. And with when further deliberation clearly will be unproductive, well, the judge can declare a mistrial. Now, the prosecution may or may not retry the case in the future, but the law has been at least nullified in the trial at hand. Now, Kirsten Tynan says these, neither these acquittals nor mistrials set a legal precedent, nor do they take laws that jurors refuse to enforce off the books. But when these kinds of refusals to convict stack up over time, you can see what would happen. The laws become unenforceable. And eventually it's no longer worth the time, hassle, or embarrassment for government officials to try to enforce these laws, and legislators may even remove them from the statutes. Jurors' refusal to enforce alcohol prohibition, for example, helped undermine such laws' enforcement, eventually culminating in the 21st Amendment repealing the 18th. Another permutation of jury nullification might be referred to as grand jury nullification. That occurs when despite grand jurors finding that there's probable cause to believe the accused committed a crime, they choose not to indict anyway. An example of this happened in Tucson, Arizona back in 2018. The 269th Pima County Grand Jury became known in the courthouse halls as the notorious 269th when it made a habit of refusing to indict victimless drug crimes for small amounts of drugs being charged as felonies. Now, when jurors in capital cases convict the accused and find in the sentencing phase of the trial that the necessary conditions have been met to impose the death penalty, but choose instead to sentence them to life without parole, that can also be referred to as a type of jury nullification. And Kirsten Tynan says, my aims are to ensure that every accused person's supposedly constitutionally guaranteed right to trial by jury is actually guaranteed and to educate so many people that it's impossible to seat juries that have no fully informed jurors. Once an accused person has access to a fully informed jury, she says, I trust and leave it up to jurors to decide for themselves whether or not to engage in jury nullification in the cases before them. She says, in the coming weeks, I'll be sharing with you information to help make sure you are fully informed should you be called for jury duty. And this will include not only the basics of jury nullification, but current information on the state of trial by jury, how judges and prosecutors are undermining the jury's traditional protective role, and how we can restore the full authority of the jury in delivering just verdicts. And I like how she ends this. She says, I'm going to close with a final reminder. The one person guaranteed not to be on your jury, should you one day be accused, is you. So it is not in your best interest to just read this information and keep it to yourself. Please share this information with others to ensure you have fully informed jurors ready to stand up for you and your rights if one day you should need them. 
I know some people have some real heartburn over this. Well, Brian, this sounds a lot like we're just teaching people how to get away with breaking the law. And, you know, the jurors are just enabling people to break the law and get away with it. But I wonder if, if that concern could extend to, but what if there is an unjust law? I still think back to the case of a missionary couple, and I, I have looked in vain to try to find the news story. I know I read it at one point, but, you know, I'm, I'm not finding it online. This has probably been 20 years ago. A couple was called to serve a mission in Mexico, and they went and they served their mission faithfully, and when they had uh, completed their mission, they packed up and they were headed back to the United States. They actually had lived in Mexico, and they drove their belongings over in a trailer. They packed their belongings up, and were headed back home. Unbeknownst to them, someone had placed a package of drugs in their trailer. And as they were crossing the border, um, the drug dog alerted, their trailer was searched, they were found with these drugs in their possession. Now this was an elderly couple. Zero criminal history whatsoever. But the jurors were not allowed to, to, to understand that they did not have to convict this couple. The only things they were allowed to consider was were the drugs found in the couple's car as they tried to cross the border? Did they try to cross the border with drugs in their possession? And the jurors, well, yeah, they did. And so they sent this couple to prison for 10 years. Does that not seem like a miscarriage of justice? Oh, I know there's super sleuths out now, Brian. They probably were the perfect cover and they were working in concert. We don't know that. But let's just suppose, for just the sake of argument, what if Grandma and Grandpa really didn't know? Does sending them to prison really accomplish justice, or does it just, uh, you know, amount to another notch on the headboard for, uh, you know, a prosecutor? I think I know how I would answer that. So, I encourage you, don't shy away from jury duty. We need people who understand justice, who understand the power of the jurors. And you can go to the Fully Informed Jury Association to learn more about this. I'll have a link to Kirsten Tynan's article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, I just want to give a quick shout-out to my sponsor, LifesavingFood.com. I've always been a fan of having food storage. There, I know it may sound weird, and if you, if you think I'm weird, that's fine. I'll, I'll accept the, the label of weirdness. But there's something very comforting at being able to uh, to look at uh, your food storage and realize, you know what? In a pinch, if we had to uh, hunker down for a while and make do with what we have, we'd be good to go. In fact, the, the, the really amazing thing is when you realize not only I can take care of my family, but I also have enough that I could take care of friends or I could take care of my neighbors or extended family. Yeah, it's good to know that you have options. And I tell you this because... We are, we are entering a really unstable time right now. I mean, it's, it's been tough for the last 20 months, but it's, it's still a very, very difficult time. We don't know what lies ahead. Might be a great idea to have some great food storage, 25-year shelf life on hand, 
Whether it's a long-term supply, you just want to add vegetables, fruits, or meats, or milk, or eggs to your existing supply. Maybe you need a good 72-hour kit. Maybe you just need something really handy to take hunting as part of the hunt. Go to lifesavingfood.com, and when you get to checkout, use my last name, Hyde, H-Y-D-E, to get 20% off your purchase. That's a pretty serious discount, by the way. And it's a better deal than you're going to find if you went to ReadyWise themselves. Lifesavingfood.com. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Well, there's a lot of effort going on right now to punish and to shame the non-compliant. This is especially true as it comes to the COVID vaccine. How do we take care of those people who are willing to stand up for their rights? I know, you know, they are hated and they are cursed and people celebrate that they're suffering. Ah, serves you right. About time you learned consequences. Seems like a really small-minded way to live life. But hey, if, if that's what brings you joy, okay, you do you. How can we help, though, the people who are making a principled stand? Brandon Smith, writing for alt-market.us, has a terrific article called We Will Not Comply, Red States Should Offer Sanctuary to Businesses, Military, and Medical Personnel. He says, all it takes is one free place to change the dynamic between the public and an authoritarian regime. Just one. Now, he says that it's been an extremely busy news cycle. There's a lot to cover. So along with my normal weekly analysis on one major topic, He says, I'm going to start writing shorter synopsis articles on developing news items happening in real time. But his point is, I think everyone has noticed a marked and aggressive shift in the vaccine passport agenda being railroaded into existence by the Biden administration and governments around the world. Remember when they all said they were never going to demand forced vaccinations and that passports were just a a conspiracy theory? Well, guess what? We conspiracy theorists were right yet again. It used to be that we would predict a particular agenda or event, and it would take a couple of years to unfold. These days, we make predictions, and all it takes is a few weeks or a few months for them to happen. And Brandon Smith says, This suggests to me that the establishment and globalists are on a specific timeline, and that for whatever reason, they must get 100% vaccination and passports in place soon. He says, I believe we have less than a year left before we see them attempt full-bore medical tyranny in the U.S. on a scale similar to what's happening right now in Australia, or perhaps worse. Listen to his reasoning, though. And this this is probably the most subversive thing you're going to hear all day. So I'm very thrilled to get to share it with you. He says, I continue to suspect that the reason for this sudden dive into totalitarianism is because there's something wrong with the vaccines themselves. And if there are tens of millions or hundreds of millions of unvaccinated people left, then these people will act as a control group. That is to say, they will act as proof that the vaccines are not safe if things go awry. And the establishment can't allow that. Now, keep in mind, the average vaccine is tested for 10 to 15 years before it's released for use on human beings. And that's to ensure there are no damaging health side effects that might not become visible until months or years after the initial jab. A particular danger is the development of autoimmune disorders and infertility associated with mRNA and spike protein technology. These debilitating ailments might not be noticed for a couple of years after a population's been given the experimental vax. 
It's already been about a year since the COVID vaccines were introduced by emergency authorization. So time is running short for the globalists. He says the bottom line is there has been zero long-term testing of the COVID mRNA vaccines. At least none that has ever been revealed to the public. And there is no scientific evidence that the COVID vaccines are safe in the long term. They were developed and released within months of the COVID outbreak. Yet the establishment seems hell-bent on forcing hundreds of people, 100% of people, I should say, to take these untested vaccines against their better judgment. Now, Brandon Smith says it's been almost a century since we last saw government tyranny on this level. But this time, it's almost all governments around the world acting in unison to implement mass controls on the public instead of just a handful of nations. He says the Biden administration and its corporate powers or partners, rather, are implementing a blitzkrieg against the American citizenry. Biden's vaccine executive orders are creating a culture of papers, please fascism among larger businesses and big box retailers. He's recently announced that part of the mandates will include fines against businesses that refuse to enforce proof of a vaccination on their employees. And those fines will range anywhere from $70,000 to $700,000, which could destroy a medium-sized company if they actually had to pay. Medical personnel, primarily in leftist blue states, are now being fired from their positions because they refuse to comply with the vax. And this is leaving massive gaps in medical responses in places like New York. The unelected governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, claims she has the right to give herself dictatorial powers through executive order and that these powers include deploying National Guard troops to take over medical duties. If you're familiar with the sordid history of VA hospitals, then you know you don't want around 90% of military doctors operating on you in any capacity. I think that may be a little bit harsh, but okay. Hochul's also raising eyebrows with a recent speech to a church audience in Brooklyn where she claimed that all the smart people have taken the vaccines and that the COVID jabs are a gift from God. And her assertion is if you deny, defy the vaccine mandates, well, then you are ignoring God. That sounds rather familiar. Authoritarians often have a habit of declaring divine providence to justify their oppressive actions. Even Hitler did this, at least initially, holding state-sponsored passion plays and asserting that the Third Reich was the hand of God until after they had secured an empire, then Hitler attacked Christianity. These types of people tend to use religion as a tool to get what they want and then dump it in the gutter when they're finished with it. Now, Brandon Smith also says... Keep in mind that none of these mandates are actual laws. None of them have been voted on by a legislature or the American people. They are color of law violations of the Constitution and Bill of Rights and should be defied at every opportunity. Furthermore, he says, I have to ask that pesky but logical question once again. If the vaccines actually work, as governments claim, then how are unvaccinated people any threat to vaccinated people? Why would they need protection from us? He says the reality is the COVID vax does not work, so there's no reason to take it. But let's get back to Biden's criminal trespasses. The list is growing by the day. He wants to punish U.S. troops that refuse the vaccines with a dishonorable discharge. And Brandon Smith says, I don't know if Biden knows that a dishonorable discharge generally requires a trial by court-martial in the military. Or maybe this is what he actually wants for every person that will not take the vax. In any case, the goal here is to terrify military members into submission and into accepting illegal orders. 
And yes, demanding that a soldier soldier act as a lab rat for an experimental vaccine with no long-term data to prove its safety is an illegal order. And all of this over a virus with a tiny median death rate of 0.26%. Now he says, I think it's the best path forward is for red states or maybe even red counties to begin to offer safe haven or asylum to people who are under attack from these mandates. They could give financial protection to businesses that refuse to comply with federal mandates and refuse to pay the fines. If thousands or tens of thousands of companies simply ignore the passports and fines, what is Biden going to do about it? Well, he'd have to send people from an agency like the IRS to collect by force. But if states and communities stand in their way, then there's nothing that Biden can do to hurt businesses that believe in freedom. So conservative states and uh, communities, he says, are going to have to step up, take risks. They're going to have to draw a line in the sand right here and now. But he says we have to act. And he says, I and many others are willing to help defend any business or person that won't comply with the mandates. But we need to continue to make it clear that we will not comply. Take heart. Be courageous. Stand your ground. This is The Brian Hyde Show.